I'm Rosie Matteo, and welcome to From Pot to Popular, a new podcast where we interview the media, marketers, and moguls who are mainstreaming cannabis. Welcome to today's episode of Pot to Popular. I'm your host, Rosie Matteo. Today, we're joined by Brian Vicente, founder and partner of Vicente Cedarberg, one of the longest running and prolific law firms in the cannabis space. Brian is going to join us today and talk about how he and his firm helped frame some of the early cannabis laws and where he really sees industry going from his vantage point as one of the leading attorneys in the space. Welcome, Brian. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. I'm so glad you're here. And I always like to start with like the elevator pitch. Tell us what Vicente Cedarberg is. Sure. So we're a unique animal in that we're kind of the biggest law firm of our kind. We have about 100 staff and all we do is cannabis law. So um, that makes us pretty unique. We've touched well over a thousand cannabis and ancillary clients and uh, are touching more every day. So it's really a interesting practice area. Yeah. And, you know, uh, to follow up on that, you've had your hand on like several uh, notable breakthroughs shaping cannabis law and regulations since the inception of the legal cannabis industry. And I think you're known as a de facto spokesman for our industry, which is pretty cool. So you guys are, you know, guiding cannabis policy on a global scale. So can you just tell our listeners a little bit about how you got started litigation and actually what led you to the cannabis space? You guys are the largest, but how did you get here? Sure. So I've been doing this for a long time, since uh, 2004. And, you know, really started out kind of defending medical marijuana patients, people with AIDS and cancer, folks that were literally dying and wanted to use medical cannabis and didn't want to be prosecuted for it. And so I, I started defending their cases and, you know, felt very strongly about the fact that they deserve access to medicine. And then because a lot of those were high profile cases, I was getting in the press a lot. And this was, you know, way before we had, you know, medical marijuana stores or yeah. adult use legalization, of course. And I, you know, kind of became a little bit of a magnet for individuals that were trying to get into this industry, trying to be caregivers for patients, trying to start changing laws. And so it was, you know, really fortunate to be involved in, uh, you know, Colorado's legalization. I was one of the authors of that measure and co-directed the campaign. And that in many ways created like the framework for a lot of the legalization we're seeing, you know, around the country to some extent around the globe. So been a fun ride. Yeah. And, you know, I want to talk a little more about that. So you guys, you know, did help write Amendment 64, like the 2012 measure that legalized cannabis in Colorado. And I think you guys were also pretty instrumental in uh, framing the, the law in Massachusetts in 2016. So I'd love to understand about what you learned in writing those laws and what are some of the vital considerations for states that are enacting medical or recreational cannabis next couple of years? We know there are um, some initiatives on ballots throughout the country. So what are like those big learning experiences or takeaways? Sure. So, um, you know, initially, right, our mindset was that cannabis had been illegal in our country for 100 years. Right. And so we set out to try to change that and to, to legalize cannabis in Colorado. And it became pretty clear that we had to create a structure in people's mind. We had to crystallize this idea that legalization was possible, right? It had been illegal for hundred years. How could we possibly do this? And so the framework we came up with is we said, hey, let's, let's treat cannabis like alcohol. You know, let's regulate it. Adults 21 and over can use it. Let's tax it. And let's use that tax revenue for good purposes. And that sort of allowed people to wrap their heads around right? So that's, you know, largely the framework that we've continued to uh, foster, right? Whether it's in Massachusetts or, you know, we've been involved in 
And, you know, so I'm with the phone with the Oklahoma legalization campaign yesterday. You know, it's where we're involved in many, many states and some other countries that are considering this framework. And it's worked in Colorado, right? I mean, it's all about removing criminal penalties for adults, you know, creating this, this regulatory framework. And then the kind of forgotten stepchild of all this is also legalizing hemp. So if you can do that in one vote, you know, uh, which is what most states have kind of you know, mimicked what Colorado did, it, it can be, you know, very transformative for that, for that state. Yeah. And, you know, I'll I'll talk a little bit about Oklahoma since you brought it up. So what's your take on the cannabis ballot initiatives, you know, coming up in November? Like, what will take the lawmakers to catch up with voters in states like Oklahoma, Arkansas, who like did vote overwhelmingly to include legalization, but may still see it removed? What's going on there? Yeah, I mean, this is really interesting, right? And I've been working on trying to change cannabis laws for about 20 years. So we've seen a lot of ups and downs. and, And we've also learned a lot of about our prohibitionist opponents, right? And and their latest tactic has turned out to be fairly effective. I mean, what's going on is the the vast majority of the American public, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, supports legalization. You know, from Alaska to Alabama, people are finally on board with it. And so anywhere that you could place this on the ballot, it will generally win. And, And we're looking at potentially six ballot measures this November, which is astounding, right? I mean, that that could get us to 25 legalization states, which is sort of a tipping point, if you think about it, for changing federal law. Unfortunately, uh, because prohibitionists can no longer win at the ballot, they've, they've sort of pulled this dirty trick where they're getting involved in uh, suing to prevent this form of direct democracy, right? Suing to prevent ballot initiatives from going on the ballot in front of the voters because they're afraid of what the voters will do. So in, in Oklahoma, I was on with the, the counsel for that campaign, as well as the director. Essentially, it's, you know, this, this measure is now sitting in front of the Oklahoma Supreme Court. And I think today, or soon, right? Depending on when this podcast airs, they will be deciding whether or not this is going to make the November ballot. And it's kind of a technicality. But the problem is that if you think about the Oklahoma Supreme Court, that is a conservative bunch of people. Yeah. We saw the same thing in South Dakota and North Dakota, and we're now seeing it in Arkansas. So it's it's become this legal battle to prevent the will of the voters from, from being heard. Having yeah. said that, I still think we win a number of them. I think we win Maryland for sure. Yeah. And, and I think if we can get Oklahoma, Arkansas, Missouri, uh, North Dakota, South Dakota on the ballot, I think we win them all in November. It's just a matter of getting them there. Yeah. And let's talk about getting there, right? So I just want to talk about these states, but I'd love to talk a little bit about what's happening on the federal side of things. So what dominoes do you think need to fall for federal legalization to become a reality, right? The reception to the CAOA bill was disappointing, but are you optimistic about state banking or with added social equity measures? Like, what do you think like could work from your vantage point? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. Um, I've been saying federal legalization is, you know, three years away for the last 20 years. So it's it's, it's hard, hard for me to uh, <laughs> hard for me to exactly predict that. That said, we are very active in D.C. Our firms, they're lobbying and participating in trade associations and so forth that are that are doing wonderful work. You know, at the end of the day, I mean, my, my cynical side says that what we need is is term limits on <laughs> on these uh, senators and, and yeah. reps because uh, we have these very, very old individuals who have hated cannabis for 50 years and they're not going to change their mind. So we need some turnover at the U.S. Senate uh, before probably before we see major you know, legalization legislation passed. That being said, I mean, we just saw some for the first time ever, you know, Chuck Schumer put forward a legalization bill in the Senate. We've obviously already passed the House. Yeah. So it's, you know, there's there's momentum. I'm hopeful we'll see some banking reform this year. I feel like Biden needs a win 
And this is like an easy win to give the guy, you know, something on cannabis policy yeah. that he can turn back to folks like me that raise money for him and say, Hey, you know, I did something for you guys, even if it wasn't, you know, what would have been wildly popular, like legalizing cannabis. So I think we've got a shot, you know, Ed Perlmutter, who's a congressman from Colorado has been just slaving away on banking for years and years. And, and he's, he's committed to putting it in front of every vote he can this year. So it'd be nice to see some banking reform, if nothing else this year. Absolutely. And one of the things I know there's a lot of talk about in, you know, some of this policy, uh, both state and federal level, is social equity, right? And and you guys have been purposeful in advancing social equity goals in the cannabis space. I think you previously served as the executive director of the Sense of Sensible Colorado, another president of the National Hispanic Cannabis Council. So what kind of work is the NHCC doing to educate the public on cannabis and bring more minorities into the rapidly growing industry? And also, you know, as cannabis is one of the fastest growing sectors, there is this model that encourages shift that includes more social justice initiatives to correct these past wrongs. So do you think it's going to be policy? Do you think it's going to be, you know, from the private sector? How does this actually, how do we get a great social equity program, you know, throughout this country? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, the National Hispanic Cannabis Council uh, is, an, is a relatively new nonprofit. It's formed in the last year and a half. I'm, I actually serve as the president. And there's a number of you know, Latino business owners and, and large MSOs and small cannabis operators that are part of this group. Our mission is simple. is We basically want more participation by Hispanics in the U.S. cannabis market, whether that's, you know, as employees, whether that's as owners, whether that's as regulators. And the why is quite easy, right? If you look why, at why cannabis became illegal, it was almost entirely to criminalize uh, Hispanics in the early 1900s. Right. And since then, as we know, you know, we've seen disproportionate effects of all people of color, including Hispanics, in terms of arrests and prosecutions for years and years and years. And now, unfortunately, as, as we enter this new era of uh, cannabis legalization and regulation, we have Hispanics are disproportionately represented in terms of ownership, right? They're just not owning and, and participating in cannabis businesses the way that that you know, essentially whites are. So that's the, the purpose of the organization. It's, it's really kind of caught fire in certain ways. Uh, we actually worked with Chuck Schumer, just talking about the Senate majority leader, on an op-ed recently. We've been, um, you know, we started, uh, launched our first local chapter in New York recently and, and have been really just kind of out there agitating, providing information to regulators and, and elected officials, as well as trade associations about why, you know, the Latino voice matters. And really, it's a smart business play. I mean, this is a growing population, right? I mean, look at, you know, I was just down in New Mexico giving a talk about cannabis. 49% of their state is, is Hispanic. You know, look at California, look at LA, look at New York. Like there's so many Spanish speakers out there that should be catered to and should really be allowed from a social justice lens to participate in this in this in this new industry. In terms of how to crack that nut to get a higher degree of Hispanic ownership in, in cannabis businesses. I think that's, the, it's a wonderful thing that we're talking about that, right? Like we're trying to figure it out. And honestly, for the first probably 10 years of my work in legalization, this was not a topic people were interested in discussing. So now it's on the tip of every regulator and state reg, and state legislator's tongue, which is wonderful. Um, of course, one way to do that is to organize like the National Hispanic Cannabis Council is, you know, come together in numbers and and, and have your voice heard. But I think there's a fair amount we can do to just try to influence state and local regulations to be more reflective of the population, right? So we're trying to push you know, states to hire more Hispanic regulators. We're trying to, to push for more funding in this space. Maybe it's lower 
tiers for licenses, lower costs for licenses for, for individuals of color or people who have been disproportionately impacted by the drug war, whether that's, you know, young people, women, what have you. And, you know, many states are tackling this head on. I mean, you're in New York, they're, they're absolutely going for it. Illinois is going for it. And Illinois actually accomplished almost 50% of their initial licenses for adult use were one out to people of color. So I think, you know, movements are being made exactly how to do it perfectly. We're still figure, trying to figure out, but the important thing is we're trying. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, all this incremental, you know, work hopefully will uh, add up to a, a real social equity program, you know, nationally once we get there. So, you know, kudos to you guys for doing the work and, you know, starting these organizations and, you know, being an, a loud voice around it. And you mentioned New York. So I do want to pivot to that because, you know, we're based in New York, you know, we're hearing all the chatter and the excitement, but it's taking a while. So you've been working with clients to secure licenses in New York, you know, as the state makes its way towards store openings. So talk about hurdles that you foresee for the operators that are there now and the retailers. And what are the advantages of getting in the market early? Like some people are super excited about it. And now because it's taking so long, you're seeing a little less enthusiasm from some of the larger operators. Essentially, out of like the MedMen deal. Like what is happening in New York? What is the opportunity? And what are some of the challenges? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm very fired up on New York and, and legalization. And I have been for a while. And my, my take on this is, you know, I think there's three sort of significant things that have happened in legalization in the last 30, 40 years, in marijuana policy in 30, 40 years. One was California passing medical marijuana in 1996, right, which started everything. Then the second was Colorado legalizing cannabis in 2012, which just proved that cannabis could be legalized. And the third was New York legalizing marijuana. I'm convinced that it's that big of a deal. Right. And when the history books look back and say, well, how did cannabis really become globally acceptable? I think New York will be one of those major milestones. And my my kind of reasoning there is that, you know, if I'm a, a guy in India or if I'm in Tokyo, like I may not have heard of Colorado. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a, it's not like right. something I reference, but everyone in the globe has heard of New York, right? It's right. an it's an absolute global influencer. It's a fashion capital. It's a cultural capital. It's a financial capital. It's a tourist destination, uh, you know, globally known. And I believe that the law that's been written there and the intention of the regulators will create a system that will rever- reverberate globally, right? People will come there and visit it and, and they'll go back to wherever they're from and say, wow, that, that worked. And actually they're this emphasis on social justice and social equity is really interesting. And so I think it'll be a sort of tipping point in, in how the world views cannabis. But, but of course, we got to get from here to there, right? And we got to get these stores open off the ground. And so far, they've been very bold in their timelines, in their uh, interest, you know, at the, at the state level in terms of giving licenses to communities that have been disproportionately impacted. So all this is is really looking very positive. And, and we've been really active you know, for years in New York, you know, helping not only kind of guide the regulations, you know, we typically do that in any state that will listen. We, we provide insight on lessons learned and, and cannabis reform, but also in working with clients. And at this point, we have, you know, well over 100 clients in, in New York. And really the broader tri-state is important too, but New York's been one of our major focuses. And some of that's working with social equity applicants that are really just trying to, you know, they've been a victim of the drug war. And now they want to use an opportunity to become licensed. That's It's an honor to represent those people. Uh, some of that's, you know, we represent a lot of like big multi-state operators and they say, hey, I want to find a way into this market. I understand how globally impactful this is going to be. And I understand how financially important this market is. You know, how do we sort of navigate in, whether that's through 
growing or, or, or stores or manufacturing or consumption clubs. I mean, it's, it's a lot of really exciting conversations going on. Uh, amazing. Um, you know, we're really excited. It's in our backyard. We have like one of the gray market type of clubs down the block. We see people going in all the time. They get the Empire Club, uh, but, you know, people in New York want cannabis. So, you know, really hopeful this, this moves along so that, you know, we can see a, a really healthy um, and, and compliant market. And I did want to gears to some other markets. So you guys represent um, various clients, you know, across cannabis and the MSOs or software companies, all the ancillary businesses, you know, in, in the U.S. But I think you guys became an advisor to Uruguay's government developing the world's first adult-use regulated market. Talk to us a little bit about what that was like, you know, if it's a country and you guys helped move it forward. Yeah, yeah. Now, that was one of the really interesting things about when we legalized marijuana in Colorado in 2012, so 10 years ago. Our, like, first off, we didn't know we were going to win, right? You know, like, you've been trying to legalize cannabis really since Keith Strop was around, you know, born. But we, we did, we won. And then the interesting thing was our phones just didn't stop ringing, right? All these individuals from across the globe, like, we got a voicemail from the president of Mexico, you know, like, literally just calling to congratulate us out of the blue. And Uruguay was one of those countries that reached out and said, hey, you know, we are we're different than Colorado. We're, we're, I mean, they're sort of a socialist nation in some ways, but we're interested in really pursuing cannabis reform. We get it. And so myself and actually my partner, Christian, at different times, went down there and and kind of did a bit of a tour around Uruguay, met with the vice president and some other individuals that were, you know, elected and, uh, and really just tried to explain what it, what the system was in Colorado, why we thought it made sense, and you know, to hear from them about what might work for their country, and in fact, they subsequently did you know move forward with becoming the first uh, country to legalize cannabis. It was super exciting, and they they beat Canada to the mark. Yeah, and so a, a little bit more about that. So, like, what do you think? We have a little bit about it, but like, what dominoes really need to fall for it to become a reality here in the U.S.? So we have this like federal, uh, a national program. Yeah. So, you know, as as I'm sure your listeners know, we have a very schizophrenic (laughs) cannabis policy in our country where we have, you know, uh, 19 states with legalized marijuana, 36 states with somewhat robust medical marijuana programs, yet it's, you know, fully illegally illegal at the federal level. It's just so weird. Our strategy has been pretty much the same since I started doing this, you know, 18 years ago. And that's, it's a, it's a bottom-up strategy. You know, we, began doing work in Colorado with the limited resources we had, we would just push for local ballot measures, right? Try to legalize cannabis in Denver, try to legalize cannabis in Breckenridge, make things the lowest, make cannabis possession the lowest priority in Telluride, like just trying to get the laws changed locally, which got us a lot of press, right? And then people would say, wait a second, what are these guys doing? I'm interested in learning more. I thought cannabis was terrible. This guy is saying it's not. And then, you know, we then bubbled up to running state ballot measures right from there once we had built that support. So that's what we're seeing still. I mean, as, as we discussed earlier, we have six states that may legalize cannabis in, you know, 30 days, right? And I think when that happens, you know, you now have U.S. senators and congresspeople from those states going to Washington, D.C. that are representing a legalized cannabis state. I mean, you think about like the U.S. senators from North Dakota, who are clearly Republicans and very conservative, now have to go to D.C. and sort of make a decision, like, am I going to continue to push to make my citizens of my state criminals, or am I going to actually get on board with the will of the voters in my state and work to change cannabis laws? So that's the idea. 
is we need I to hope, just keep kind of agitating. Right? Yeah, and it's going to happen, right? We need to just keep agitating at the, at the state level. You would hope that we'd have better leadership in D.C. that would sort of recognize that this is coming and get ahead of it as opposed to just forcing us to change all these state laws. But, you know, we'll keep fighting the fight. Yeah, and just, you know, to wrap up, what are you most looking forward to for Vicente for Cedarburg or the industry as a whole in 2022? I know we've got these, you know, six ballots, six initiatives on the ballot, but what are you most excited about for the firm and for the industry? Sure. Well, you know, I'm I'm really excited because the 10-year anniversary of legalization in Colorado is coming up. We're actually throwing That's an right. event with the governor of Colorado as well as some, we'll some be there. Congress people, you, you, you're invited. You can come. But that'll be at the Colorado History Museum. We'll have a number of speakers and kind of, um, you know, campaign paraphernalia from back in the day. And, you know, I'm excited about that because, you know, I'm, I'm one of the guys who kind of helped pull this event together. And we, we are intentionally doing it a couple of weeks before the election because we want to get press. We want the governor to say, hey, you know, I wasn't sure about cannabis, but then it became legalized and now I'm 100 percent behind it. And this is why that matters. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll get some national press on that. And people who are voting in the, in the Dakotas or Maryland will say, you know, this actually this narrative makes sense. I wasn't sure about cannabis either, but it seems like it's working great in Colorado 10 years in. And and let's celebrate that fact. And it is amazing right how, how Colorado has put those tax dollars to use, right? You're seeing the improvements in communities, right? This fear that it's going to denigrate communities is just the myth. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we kind of like, in any, in some ways, undersold our initiative. We said it would bring in, you know, maybe forty million dollars a year, and it's it's like tenfold that much. You know, it's it's been outrageous the amount of tax revenue brought in, and it's also brought in probably fifteen thousand direct jobs in our state. Yeah. So this is a pretty remarkable industry. Here. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to come to the party. We will get pressed there. No pressure. We're out. Uh, um, but, you know, really kudos to you for all, and you and the firm for all the hard work you're doing on behalf of the industry. And, you know, we're all hopeful that um, collectively we're we'll able to get to where we need to be. So thanks for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to talk to you, Rosie.